Chapter Twenty Five of Flowing Gold by Rex Beach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Gray was shocked at the change in Ma Briscoe. She had failed surprisingly. Pleasure lit her face, and she fell into a brief flutter of delight at seeing him. But as soon as their first greeting was over, he led her to the lounge and insisted upon making her comfortable. He had tricks with cushions and pillows, so he declared. They became his obedient servants, and there was a knack in arranging them, the same knack that a robin uses in building its nest. This he demonstrated quite conclusively. It was nice to have a great masterful man like this take charge of one, and Ma sighed gratefully as she lay back. It does kind of feel like a bird's nest, she declared, and you kind of look like a robin, too. You're always dressed so neat. Exactly, he chuckled. Robins are the very neatest dressers of all the birds. But look, like a real robin, I've brought spring with me. He opened a huge box of long-stemmed roses and held their cool, dewy buds against Bob Briscoe's withered face. Then, laughing and chatting, he arranged them in vases where she could see them. Next he drew down the shades, shutting out the dreary afternoon, after which he lit the gas log, and soon the room, whether by reason of his glowing personality or his deft rearrangements of his contents or both, became a warm and cheerful place. He had brought other gifts and flowers, too, thoughtful, expensive things that fairly took Ma's breath. No one had ever given her presents, to be remembered, therefore, with useless, delightful little luxuries, filled her gentle soul with a guilty rapture. But these were not gifts in the ordinary sense. They were offerings from the Duke of Dallas, and his manner of presenting them invested every article with ducal dignity. The Princess of Pensacola had not played for a long time, and so to recline languidly in a beautiful Japanese kimono, with her feet in a pair of wonderful soft boudoir slippers, spun by the Duke's private silkworms, and knit by his own oriental knitting slaves, while he paid court to her, was doubly thrilling. The Duke certainly was a reckless spender, but thank goodness he hadn't brought things for the house, things just to look at, and to share with other people. He knew enough to buy intimate things, things a woman could wear and feel rich in. Ma hugged herself and tried to look beautiful. Gray was seated on the side of her couch, with her cold hand between his warm palms, and he was telling her about the princess of Wichita Falls when the summons to dinner interrupted them. Ma was not hungry, and she expected to have a bite in her own room, but her caller was so vigorous in his objections to this plan that she finally agreed to come downstairs. The Briscoe household was poorly organized as yet, and it was only natural that it should function imperfectly. Nevertheless, Gray was annoyed at the clumsy manner in which the dinner was served. Being a meticulous man, and accustomed to comfort, incompetent servants distressed him beyond measure, and he soon discovered that the Briscoe help was as completely incompetent as any he had ever seen. The butler, for instance, a pleasant-faced colored man, had evidently come straight from the docks, for he passed the food much as a stoker passes coal to a boiler, while the sound of crashing platter 
in the butler's pantry gave evidence that the second girl was a house wrecker. See here, Ma, Gray threw down his napkin. You have a beautiful home, and you want it to be perfect, don't you? Why, of course. We bought everything we could buy. Everything except skillful servants, and they are hard to find. You are capable of training your cook and teaching your upstairs girl to sweep and make beds. But the test of a well-run house is a well-served meal. Dish-breaking ought to be a felony, and when I become president, I propose to make the spoiling of food a capital offense. Now then, you're not eating a bite, anyhow, and Gus won't mind waiting a while for his dinner. With your permission, I'd like to take things in hand and add a hundred percent to your future comfort. In some bewilderment, Ma agreed that she would do anything her guests suggested, whereupon he rose energetically and called the three domestics into the dining room. We are going to start this dinner all over again, he announced, and we are going to begin by swapping places. I'm going to serve it as a dinner should be served, and you are going to eat it as, well, I dare say, nature will have to take its course. I shall explain as I go along, and I want you to remember every word I say, every move I make. Mr. and Mrs. Briscoe are going to look on. After we have finished, you are going to serve us exactly as I served you. Naturally, this proposition amazed the help. In fact, its absurdity convulsed them. The man laughed loudly. The cook buried her ebony face in her apron. The second girl bent double with mirth. Here was a quaint gentleman, indeed, a great joker. But the gentleman was not joking. On the contrary, he brought his levity to an abrupt halt. Then, gravely, ceremoniously, he seated the trio. They sobered quickly enough at this. They became, in fact, as funereal as three crows. But their astonishment at what followed was no greater than that of the Briscoes. Gray played butler with a correctness and a poise deeply impressive to his round-eyed audience. And as he served the courses, he delivered a lecture upon the etiquette of domestic service, the art of cooking, and the various niceties of a servant's calling. Nothing could have been more impressive than being waited upon by a person of his magnificence, and his lecture, moreover, was delivered in a way that drove understanding into their thick heads. It was an uncomfortable experience for all except Gray himself. He actually enjoyed it, and when the last dish had been removed, and he had given instructions to serve the meal over again exactly as he had served it, the three Negroes were glad to obey. Of course they made mistakes, but these Gray instantly corrected, and the results of his dress rehearsal were, on the whole, surprising. There, he said, when the ordeal had finally come to an end. A little patience, a little practice, and you'll be proud of them. Incidentally, I have saved you a fortune in dishes. I wish Allie had been here. She'd remember everything you said, Ma declared. Lord, think of Mr. Gray waiting on them niggers. Gus was still deeply shocked. You see what a meddlesome busybody I am, the guest laughed. I don't know how to mind my own business and the one luxury I enjoy most of all is regulating other people's affairs. He was still talking, still lecturing his hearers upon the obligations prosperity had put upon them when he was summoned to the telephone by a long-distance call. 
he returned in some agitation to announce. Well, at last, I have business of my own to attend. Was that Buddy talking? It was, and he gave me some good news. He said that well on 35 is liable to come in at any minute, and it looks like a big one. The speaker's eyes were glowing, and he ran on breathlessly. He says they're betting it will do better than 10,000 barrels. 10,000 barrels? Briscoe echoed. That's what he said. Of course they can't tell a thing about it. Buddy's only guessing, but I haven't had a big well yet. Gray took a nervous turn about the room. Ten thousand barrels, Lord, that would help. That would do the trick. And to think that it should come now, this very day. He laughed triumphantly and ran on as if talking to himself. The wicked are fattened for destruction. Their happiness shall pass away like a torrent. Pull out and leave me, eh? A second time he laughed more loudly. Luck. It isn't luck, it's destiny. The mills of the gods are grinding. Ma Briscoe, the fairy ladies danced upon the hearth when I was born. Do you know what that means? Ten thousand barrels a day, and you button for three niggers, gasped the head of the house. I'm going out on tonight's train and see it come in, if it does come in. I told Buddy to stop work not to drop another tool until I arrived. Fat it for destruction. I like the sound of that. Ten thousand barrels. Whole. I'll write this day in brass. Why? The leases will sell for a million. It, it may mean the end. Gray brought himself to with an effort. Hastily he kissed Ma Briscoe's faded cheek and wrung her husband's hand. A moment later he was gone. Thirty-five, where Buddy was working, was only a few miles from the Briscoe Ranch. Therefore the boy was able to meet his sister at Ranger and drive her directly to the old home. The place was much the same as when they had left it, thanks to the watchful attention of the men in charge of the Briscoe Wells. And there they spent the night. Buddy and his sister had always been close confidants, and their long separation, their varied experiences, left many things to be discussed. The ranch house seemed very mean, very insignificant to Allie, but she slipped into one of her old dresses and prepared the supper while Buddy straddled a kitchen chair and chatted upon ten thousand topics of mutual interest. Doggone, he exclaimed finally, I hardly knew you when you stepped off that train, but it seems like old times now with you hustling around in that gingham. I wish it was. Huh? I wish sometimes that we'd never struck oil. Good Lord, why? Oh, Allie turned her back and bent over the stove. For lots of reasons. Ma never had a sick day till lately. Now she's failing fast. Buddy frowned at this intelligence, and Pa's as restless as a squirrel, all the time scared of losing his money. Well, you got no kick coming, sis. You've sure made good. How? I don't know. You got rich ways. And rich looks, too. Allie lifted an interested face, and her brother undertook, somewhat awkwardly, to tell her wherein she had improved. She listened with greedy delight. But when he had finished, she shook her head skeptically and declared, It sounds nice, and God knows I've tried hard enough. But there's a difference, bud. We're trash, and always will be. Of course young Briscoe's mind was full of business, 
and he could not long stay off that absorbing topic. When, during their supper, he announced the fact that the well on 35 showed signs of coming in shortly and that he intended to send for Calvin Gray, Allie changed her mind about returning home and decided to wait over until the latter arrived. She and Buddy talked until a late hour that night, but although she was dying to have him tell her about his romance, his dream of love, he never so much as referred to it, and she could not bring herself to disregard his recitants, nor could she bear to discuss with him the problem that lay nearest her own heart. She had brooded long over that problem, and her soul was hungry to share its bitter secret. Nevertheless, she could not do so, for it is often easier to bear one wounds to strangers than to those we love. If her breedings, her bitterness of spirit, manifested themselves, it was in a fixed undertone of pessimism, and in an occasional outburst of recklessness that bewildered her brother. On the morning of Gray's coming, she rode with Buddy over to thirty-five. It was a wretched rainy day, and nothing is more bleak than a rainy day in a drilling camp. Work had been halted, and the men were loafing in their bunkhouse. Brother and sister spent the impatient hours in the mess tent. As usual, they talked a good deal about Calvin Gray. Funny him coming here as a stranger and getting to run our whole family, ain't it, Buddy said. Allie nodded. Funnier thing than that is your working for him. Buddy was surprised, so she asked him, Aren't you sore at him for what he did, for breaking up that affair? It was a question that had been upon her lips more than once. She could not credit her brother with entire sincerity when he answered, frankly enough, Sore? Not the least bit. Didn't you care for her? Why, sure. I was all tore up at first. But he did me the biggest kind of a favor. Allie shook her head uncomprehendingly. Men are queer things. You must have loved her for a while. I reckon I did, if you've a mind to call it that. But he says that sort of thing ain't real love. He says, the girl cried scornfully, My God, buddy, would you let him tell you? Is he picking out women for you like he picks out a dress for me and a hotel for Ma? How does he know what's the real thing? She was a grafter, the brother explained, with a flush of embarrassment. She'd have probably took my money and quit me cold. Bah! The girl rose, and, with sober defiance in her smoldering eyes, stared out at the desolate day. You'd have had her for a while, wouldn't you? You'd have lived while it lasted. What's the difference if she was a grafter? Do you think you're going to fall in love and marry a duchess or something? I wish I had your chance, that's all. What do you mean by that? Buddy queried sharply. I mean this, Allie flamed at him. We're nobodies, and we've got nothing but our money. A counterfeit is as good as ever we'll get, and it's as good as we're entitled to. I'd rather know what it is to live for an hour than to go on forever just pretending to live. If I've got to be unhappy, then give me something to be unhappy over, something to look back on. I'd rather be... But, Shaw, you don't understand. You couldn't. I don't know what's got into you lately, Buddy declared with a frown. Nothing's got into me. Only, what's the use of starving when the world's full of good things and you've got the price to buy them? 
I won't do it. If ever I get my chance, you watch me. Gray's trip from the railroad was more like a voyage than a motor journey, for the creek beds, usually dry, were angry torrents, and the Dobie flats were quagmires, through which his vehicle plowed hub-deep. Nevertheless, he was fresh and alert when he arrived. After a buoyant greeting to Allie, he and Buddy inspected the well. Then he issued orders for work to be resumed. "'We're getting close to something,' young Briscoe declared. "'She's making gas and rumbling like she'd let go any minute. "'We've got reservoirs built and the boilers moved back, "'so we can douse the fire when she starts. "'I figure she'll drown us out.' "'What are the indications at Nelson's well?' Gray turned his eyes in the direction of a derrick on the adjoining property, the top of which showed over the mesquite. Nothing extra. They won't tell us anything, but they're deeper than we are. How do you know? Buddy winked wisely. We counted the layers of cable on the bullwheel drum, checked up their casing, too, and watched their cuttings. They've got their eye on us, too, and they'll be over when we blow in. That was an anxious afternoon for as the drill bit deeper into the rock, it provoked indications of a terrific force imprisoned far below. To the observers, it seemed as if that sharp-edged tool was tap-tapping upon the thin shell of some vast reservoir already leaking and charged to the bursting point with a mighty pressure. An odor of gas escaped from the casing mouth. Occasionally there came hoarse, throaty gurglings of the thick liquid at the bottom of the well. The bailer was run frequently. Word had gone forth that there was something doing on 35, and from the chaparral emerged muddy motor cars, bringing scouts, neighboring lease owners, and even the members of a nearby casing crew. Supper was a jumpy meal, and nobody had much to say. Allie Briscoe, least of all. She was silent, intense. She curtly refused Buddy's offer to send her home, and when the meal was over, she followed Gray back to the derrick. He was on edge, of course. It seemed to him that every blow of that bit was struck upon his naked nerves, for he had a deep conviction that this was to prove the night of his life, and the strain of waiting was becoming onerous. This well meant so much. Ten thousand barrels, fifteen, five, even one thousand. It mattered little how heavy the flow for a good-paying well, would see him through his immediate troubles. And this was a well of some sort, or else indications meant nothing, and everybody was greatly mistaken. Of course, a big well, something to create a furor, that was what he needed. For that not only would bridge his financial crises, but it would mean a frenzy of quick drilling, new wells crowded close together, hundreds of thousands of dollars poured into the earth, and the Nelsons couldn't stand that. It would break them, break them, and he would taste the full sweetness of revenge. Oh, he had waited long. Nor was that all. Once he had Henry Nelson down and his foot on the fellow's throat, he'd have something to say to Barbara Parker. He could say it then and look her in the eyes. He wished he was here tonight while he stood on the top of the world. Ten thousand barrels, twenty thousand. Twenty thousand barrel gushers were not unknown. A well like that would mean a fortune every day. 
But why didn't it start? They were bailing again, and curiosity drew the owner in upon the derrick floor. This time the flow might begin. At any moment now, oil might come with the water. There is some danger in standing close to a well during this bailing process. But Gray was like a bit of iron in the field of a magnet, spellbound. He watched the cable as it ran smoothly off the drum, flowed up over the crown block and down into the casing mouth. That heavy torpedo-like weight at the end of the line was dropping almost half a mile. Up it came swiftly, as if greased. Up, up, until it emerged into the glare of the incandescent overhead and hung there dripping. It was swung aside and lowered, and out gushed its muddy contents. Water, black and thick as molasses, but water nevertheless. Buddy Briscoe was running the rig, and the dexterity with which he handled brake and control rod gave him pride. He had seated his sister on a bench out of the way, where she was protected from the drizzle, and he felt her eyes upon him. It gave him a sense of importance to have Allie watching him at such a crisis. He wished his parents were with her. If this well blew in, big as it seemed bound to do, it would be a personal triumph, for not many cub drillers could boast of bringing in a gusher the first time. It was, in fact, no mean accomplishment to make any sort of a well, to pierce the earth with an absolutely vertical shaft a half-mile deep, and line it with tons upon tons of heavy casing, joined airtight, and fitted to a hair's breadth, was an engineering feat in itself. It was something that only an oilman could appreciate, and he was an oilman, a darn good one, too so Buddy told himself. He eased the brake, and the massive baler slid into the casing as a heavy shell slips into the breech of a cannon. As he further released his pressure, the cable began to pour serpentine-like from the drum. Buddy turned his wet and grimy face and flashed a grin at Allie. She smiled back at him faintly. Some lightning-like change in her expression, or perhaps some occult sense of the untoward, warned him that all was not as it should be, and he jerked his head back to attention. There are moments of catastrophe when, for a brief interval, nature slows, time stops, and we are carried in suspense. Such an instant Buddy Briscoe experienced now. He knew at first glance what had happened, and a frightened cry burst from his throat. But it was a cry too short, too hoarse, to serve as a warning. During that moment of inattention, the baler had stuck. Perhaps five hundred feet below, friction had checked its plunge. And meanwhile, the velvet-running drum, spinning at its maximum velocity by reason of the whirling bull-wheel, was unreeling its cable down upon the derrick platform. Down it poured in giant loops, and within those coils, either unconscious of his danger or paralyzed by its suddenness, stood Calvin Gray. Men schooled in hazardous enterprises carry subconscious mental photographs of the perils with which their callings are invested, and they react involuntarily to them. But he had heard of drillers decapitated by flying cables, of human bodies caught within those wire loops and cut in twain, as if made of lard. For when a wedge tool resumes its downward plunge, 
It straightens those coils above the ground in the twinkling of an eye. Instinct, rather than reason, warned Buddy not to check the binding revolutions of the bull-wheel. Without thought, he leaped forward into the midst of those swiftly forming loops, and as he landed upon the slippery floor, he clenched his fist and struck with all the power he could put behind his massive arm. Gray's back was to him. The blow was like that of a walking beam, and it sent the elder man flying as a ten-pin is hurled ahead of a bowling ball. But he fell, too. He went sprawling. As he slid across the muddy floor, he felt the steel cable writhing under him like a thing alive, and the touch of it, as it streamed into the well, burned his flesh. He kicked and fought it as he would have fought the closing folds of a python, for the bailer was falling again, and the wire loops were vanishing as the coils in a whiplash vanished during its flight. Buddy's booted legs were thrown high. He was tossed aside like a thing of paper, but blind, half-stunned, he scrambled back to his post. By this time, the whole structure of the derrick was rocking to the mad gyrations of the bull-wheel. The giant spool was spinning with a speed that threatened to send it flying, like the fragments of a bursting bomb. But the youth understood dimly the danger of stopping it too suddenly. To fetch up that plunging weight at the cable end might snap the line, collapse the derrick, Jim the well. Buddy waved dizzily in his tracks. Nevertheless, his hand was steady, and he applied a gradual, increasing pressure to the brake. Nor did he take his eyes from his task until the drum had ceased revolving and the runaway bailer hung motionless in the well. When he finally looked about, it seemed to him that he had lived a long time and was very old. Gray lay motionless where he had fallen, and his body was twisted into a shocking, unnatural posture. He was bleeding. Allie Briscoe was bending over him. Other dreamlike figures were swarming out of the gloom and into the radiance of the derrick lights. There was a faraway clamor of shouting voices. But he felt himself growing deathly sick. They carried Gray to the bunkhouse, and his limbs hung loosely. His head lolled, in a manner terrifying the buddy and his sister. As they stumbled along beside the group, the girl cried, Oh, my God, oh, my God. She repeated the cry over and over again, in a voice strange to her brother's ears. It, it wasn't my fault, he told her hoarsely. I aimed to save him. You killed him. He ain't. But he choked and clung to her. He's just stunned like. He ain't that. The youth was amazed when Allie turned and cursed him with oaths that he himself seldom ventured to employ. But Gray was not dead. Buddy's blow had well-nigh broken his neck, and he had suffered a further injury to his head in falling. Nevertheless, he responded to such medical aid as they could supply, and in time he opened his eyes. His gaze was dull, however, and for a long while he lay in a sort of coma, quite as alarming as his former condition. They brought him to at last long enough to acquaint him with what had happened, and though it was plain that he understood their words only dimly, he ordered the work resumed. When for a second time he lapsed into semi-consciousness, it was Allie Briscoe who put his orders into execution. 
You ain't doing any good standing around staring at him and whispering. Bring in that well as fast as ever you can, and bring it in big. Now get out and leave him to me. Buddy was the last to go, he inquired miserably. Honest, he ain't hurt bad, is he? You don't think? Get out. He won't die. Ain't no chance of him doing that, is there? If he does, I'll... The speaker's face was ashen, but her eyes blazed. I'll fix you, Buddy Briscoe, I will. So help me God. It was late that night when the well came in. It came with a rush and a roar, drenching the derrick with a geyser of muddy water and driving both crew and spectators out into the gloom. Up, up the column rose, spraying itself into mist, and from its iron throat issued a sound unlike that of any other phenomenon. It was a hoarse, rumbling bellow, growing in volume and rising in pitch second by second, until it finally attained a shrieking crescendo. Ten thousand safety valves had let go, and they steadily gathered strength and shrillness as they functioned. A shocking sound it became, a sound that carried for miles, rocking the air and stunning the senses. It beat upon the eardrums, pierced them, Men shouted each other, but heard their own voices only faintly. Calvin Gray had recovered his senses sufficiently to understand the meaning of that uproar, and he tried to get up, but Allie held him down upon his bed. She was still struggling with him when her brother burst into the house shouting, "'It's a gasser, Mr. Gray, biggest I've ever seen.' "'Gas?' the latter mumbled indistinctly. "'Isn't there any oil?' His words were almost like a whisper because of the noise. Not yet, maybe later. Say she's a heller, ain't she? I bet she's making twenty million feet. Gasser's no good. Can't tell yet. We gotta shut her down easy so she don't blow the casing out and run wild on us, understand? Buddy was still breathless, but he plunged out the door and back into that sea of sound. With a tragic intensity, Akin to wildness, Gray stared up into Allie Briscoe's face. Worthless, huh? And they told me ten thousand barrels. He carried a shaking hand to his bandaged head and tried vainly to collect his wits. What's matter? he queried thickly. Everything's whirling, sick. You've had an accident, but it's all right, all right. No, no, please, lie still. Running wild, huh? That's what hurt my head so. Blown the casing out bad, isn't it? Sometimes they run wild for weeks, years, ruin everything. He tried again to rise, then insisted querulously, gotta get oil in this well. I've got to. Last chance, Allie, to get ten thousand barrels. Please, you mustn't. Allie had her strong hands upon his shoulders. She was arguing firmly, but as gently as possible under the circumstances when something occurred so extraordinary, so unexpected, as to paralyze her. Of a sudden, the interior of the dim-lit canvas-roof shack was illuminated as if by a searchlight, and she turned her head to see that the hole out of doors was visible and that the night itself had turned into day. With a cry that died weakly, amid the chaos of sound beating over her, the girl ran to the window and looked out. What she beheld was a nightmare, seeing. The well was afire. It had exploded into flame. Where, a moment before, 
It had been belching skyward, an enormous stream of gaseous vapor, all but invisible except at the casing head. Now it was a monstrous blowtorch, the flaming crest of which was tossed a hundred feet high. Nothing in the nature of a conflagration could have been more awe-inspiring, more confounding to the faculties than that roaring column of consuming fire. It was a thing incredibly huge, incredibly furious, incredibly wild. Human figures, black against its glare, were flying to safety. Nearby silhouettes were flinging their arms aloft and dashing backward and forward, faces upturned, to it were white and terrified. The scattered mesquite stood against the night like a wall, spotted with inky shadows, and above the heavens resembled a boiling cauldron. It was a hellish picture. It remained indelibly fixed upon Allie Briscoe's mind. As she looked on in horrid fascination, she saw the derrick change into a lattice-like tower of flame, saw its upper part begin slowly to crumble and disintegrate. The force with which the gas issued blew the blaze high and held it dancing, tumbling in mid-air, a phenomenon indescribably weird and impressive. The men who stood nearest bent their heads and shielded their faces from the heat. Allie tore her eyes away from the spectacle finally. She turned back to the bed, then she halted, for it was empty. The door, still ajar from Buddy's headlong exit, informed her whence her patient had gone, and she flew after him. She found him not half a dozen paces away. In fact, she stumbled over his prostrate body. With an Amazon strength, she gathered him into her arms, then staggered with him back to his couch, and as she strained him to herself, she loudly called his name. Amid that demonic din, amid the shrieking of those million devils, Freed from the black chasms of the rock, her voice was as feeble as the wail of a sick child. When she had laid her inert burden upon the bed, Allie knelt and took Gray's head upon her bosom. Then, for the first time, those forces imprisoned deep within her being ran wild, and under the red glare of that flaming geyser, she kissed his hair, his eyes, his lips. Over and over again she kissed them, with the hungry passion of a woman starved. End of chapter 25